Good evening, everybody. First off, a special thank you to the sponsors who are anonymous tonight. But thank you very much for sponsoring the Shear. And it is an honor of Hashem answering all of our tefillos. So, Amen. The uh, topic of this evening is navigating the maze. Special thank you to Michal for taking over for Jonathan with the, uh, the camera and the mic tonight. Navigating the maze, if you've ever tried walking in pitch black, and I did this a couple nights ago, my, you know, we have a, a fourth bedroom, the garage that's converted to the bedroom, and that's where, my, where the baby sleeps. Only problem is, my office is right through that bedroom. So sometimes when I'm being careful and responsible, I'll go outside first and then go around the house and then walk in the side door. A couple nights ago I thought that she's already been sleeping for a while, I'm sure I'll be fine. So I open the door and I don't want much light to get in from behind me, so I make sure to close it right away, slip in, and I start tiptoeing very slowly and carefully into my office and then suddenly, <laughs> I feel my head <laughs> smash into like the wall. Turns out the table was in a different place than usual. <laughs> I'm trying to hold back the moaning and the groaning. <laughs> so you know, trying to keep it in, but she wakes up anyway. So walking in pitch black is not easy to do. Yet the Gemara tells us that Olam Hazeh Doma Lechoshech. This world is compared to darkness. Because there's so much confusion, because it's so hard to really see reality clearly, this world is analogous to darkness. And explains the Ramchal that when you're trying to walk through the dark, there are two types of mistakes you can make. You could either not see anything, as in my case, until it smacks you in the face, or you could misconstrue something. I think it's a human being, but really it's a pillar. Or I think it's a pillar, but really it's a human being. Those are the two types of mistakes we can make in the dark, and those are really the two types of mistakes we can make in life. We either don't see anything, and we go on living in this almost willful blindness, or we think something is good when it's not, or we think something is inappropriate when it's really something I should be pursuing. Says the Ramchal, the analogy would be to walking through a maze. He said, oftentimes in the big palaces, they would have a garden that was planted that was in the shape of a maze. And the game was you'd have to walk through it and find your way to the achsadra, find your way to the, uh, the higher level in the middle. The only problem is every path looks the exact same. So when you're in the maze, you really have no clue where you're going. It might seem like this is the right direction, based on my, my feel, based on a sense, I think it's taking me towards the middle, when in reality, it could be taking you in a totally different direction. So what's the Eitzah? What's the only way to get out of the maze, says the Ramchal? The people who are already standing on the Achsadra, the people who have made it, they're the ones who are looking down at the maze and they could tell you exactly where you are and where you need to be going. And they could scream out to you, Zeha derech lechubo, 
this is the path, go over here. So then it depends on me. If you want to believe what they're saying, you want to accept their advice, then you'll make it to the, uh, the goal. But if we don't want to believe what they're telling us to do, then we'll be staying in that maze for a long time, never finding our way back home. So that, says the Ramchal, is really the analogy to life. What I'd like to do this evening, based on these parshios, v'yakel and pakudeh, share with you a couple of tools how to navigate within the maze. Now, the best way to explore any topic is always through asking a few good questions. Oftentimes a good question will lead you in the right direction. She'elas chacham chatzit tshuva. The question of the wise man is half the answer. So I want to share with you two major questions which I think will open up for us a whole new horizon of understanding, and that'll be a very helpful tool in the maze of life. The Torah tells us, Hashem tells Moshe that I've appointed B'Tzalel, he's in charge of building the Mishkan, and I've placed with him Aliyev ben Achisamach. And here's the key phrase, and in the heart of every wise man, I have placed wisdom. Or literally, in the heart of every wise heart, I have given wisdom. And they will do everything that I command you. So right off the bat, the question is, what is this phrase? In the heart of every wise heart, I have given wisdom. If I already have a wise heart, why do I need you to give me wisdom? What does that mean? Very basic question. But yet, B'Tzalel and his whole team, they're defined as people who have a wise heart, and therefore, they were Zoha to have wisdom given to them. We're going to learn in Parshas Pinchas. This is after Moshe turns to Hashem and says, I'm not going to be here forever, we both know that. Please appoint a leader that has a spirit to him. Please appoint someone who's capable of guiding Klal Yisrael when I'm no longer here. So Hashem responds to Moshe, Kach lechas Yoshua ben Nun, take Yoshua ben Nun, a man who has the spirit within him. And you should place your hand upon him and transfer the leadership. It almost sounds like in camp. We have Ruach. Yes, we do. We have Ruach. How about you? What does that mean that a man who possesses the spirit, it doesn't even sound Jewish, right? comes along the Svarno and he says this description of Yeshua of having Ruach it means he was Muchan Lekabel or Pnei Melechayim he was ready he was prepared to accept the light of the living king where do we find a similar idea 
Ubalev kol chacham lev nesati chachma. Just like we find regarding B'tzalel and the people working on the Mishkan, in the heart of every wise heart I have given wisdom. So the Swarna seems to be saying that whatever the quality was of B'tzalel, Yeshua had that same midah, he had that same gift, and that's why he was chosen to be the next leader. So we have this now, this connection between B'tzalel and Yeshua. It doesn't stop there. If you want to think of the, the wisest of all men, what name comes to mind? Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. Where did he get the wisdom from? We look in Tanakh. So Hashem tells Shlomo, I have done as you requested. I have given to you a wise heart and an understanding heart like no one has had before you. So King Solomon, the wisest of all men, Shlomo HaMelech, also is in this category of having a, a wise heart with Yeshua and B'Tzalel. And we have one more in the category of Chacham Leiv, none other than Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. The Gemara tells us that when Claudius were leaving Mitzrayim, everybody was engaged in taking all of the wealth, but not Moshe, he had something else in mind. He was grabbing the Atmos Yosef, the bones of Yosef. And regarding his decision, the Gemara and Sota says, Chacham Lev Yikach Mitzvos. If you're wise of heart, then you grab mitzvos. So problem number one is, what is the Tzad HaShava? What is that common thread? This, this quality of Chacham Lev that we find regarding B'Tzalel, Yoshua, Shlomo HaMelech, and Moshe Rabbeinu. That's issue number one. Issue number two, when we look at the discussion that B'Tzalel has with Moshe, it seems like it's, it's somewhat chutzpahdik. Source number seven, the Torah tells us, B'Tzalel ben Uri ben Chur lemata Yehuda, Asas kol asher tzida Hashem es Moshe. B'Tzalel, who was put in charge of the Mishkan, he did everything that Hashem commanded Moshe. That's a little bit strange, because it should have said, he did everything that Moshe commanded him. He's number three. It was Hashem to, to Moshe to B'Tzalel. Yet it's telling us he did everything that Hashem commanded Moshe. So there's a famous Gemara in Barachos that picks up on this, and it tells us almost a disturbing insight into what happened between Moshe and B'Tzalel. That when Hashem said to Moshe, You should go and tell B'Tzalel, Make a Mishkan for me, and then Aaron Vekelim. Make the structure, then make the Aaron, and then make all the other vessels. So those were the instructions given to Moshe to convey to B'Tzalel. Halach Moshe, Vahafach. Moshe went to B'Tzalel and he switched it around. And he said to him, you should make an Aaron, Kalim, and Mishkan. He put the Aaron first instead of last. So Omer Lo, B'Tzalel said to Moshe, Rabbeinu, our master, he was speaking with great humility and great reverence, Minhago shel Adam, Bonabayis, Va'acher kach machnes Usually what we find in the world 
is that you'll build the home first, and then you bring in all of the furniture. The Ata Omer, but you're saying the exact opposite. You're saying first build the Aaron and the Kalim, all the vessels, and only then build the Mishkan. If we do it in that order, where are we putting anything? You want to first build the structure. So B'Tzalel suggests, maybe Hashem said the other way, maybe you botched it up, and Moshe says back to B'Tzalel, wow, you're good. I want to give you a promotion. Perhaps you were B'Tzel Kel, you were in the shade of God, and that's how you were almost intuitive in this, in this way, knowing the exact order. So the Gemara gives us a background as to the, the deeper reason as to why he was called B'Tzalel, in the shade of the divine. But the Gemara itself is very, very hard to understand. It's very disturbing. First and foremost, how does Moshe Rabbeinu make a mistake? Everything we have in the Torah, the whole authenticity of Torah Shebechsav and Torah Shebaalpeh, of everything that we have throughout thousands of years, comes down to an ironclad belief that Moshe was the greatest of all prophets, and he didn't make mistakes. And it was very different than any other prophet throughout history. It wasn't that Hashem spoke to him, and then hours later, he wrote down his thoughts in his own words. Not with Moshe. Hashem was speaking through Moshe, and he was writing it down. It was the highest level with, with clarity and vividness. We've never had prophecy, and we never will have prophecy like that again. How does Moshe Rabbeinu make a mistake? The short answer is it wasn't a mistake. He switched it around on purpose. But that's for a different discussion. We'll leave you hanging there. What I want to focus on, though, is a second question, which is perhaps just as fundamental. I want to climb into the mind of B'Tzalel. So picture we're all B'Tzalel. We're, 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 we're sitting there with Moshe Rabbeinu as his face is radiating divine light. So though he kept it covered, when he would teach Torah, he would take it off. So we're sitting in the presence of this Malach Hashem, of this angelic human being, and he's telling us the word of God. And we just say, Ah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't seem to make so much sense. Most people do it the other way. Maybe you're wrong. Now it turns out B'Tzalah was correct. But how do you have the chutzpah to doubt Moshe Rabbeinu? That's heresy. You have to believe in the word of Moshe. Moshe speaks on behalf of Hashem. How did B'Tzalah have the chutzpah to doubt <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu? That's one issue. There's a story told with Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rav Aaron Cutler when they were both young, 14, 15, around there, and they went to Slobodka, the great yeshiva in Europe, to, to try out, to, to be tested. So the way the test was, Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein, who was the great, he was the great yeshiva in Slobodka, he sat down across from both Rabbi Yaakov and Rav Aram, and he told them a kitzos, a very deep, logical analysis of some area of Jewish law. He told it over to them, and then he paused. And he looked at both of them and said, Ask me a kasha on the kitzos. Ask me a question. Tell me why it doesn't make any sense. So Rabbi Yaakov's response was he was a little bit taken aback. Like, I'm going to ask on the kitzos and tell you why it doesn't make sense. I can't do that. 
Ravaran Cutler came from a different upbringing and in, in learning and a different approach and methodology. And, you know, in his, in his fire, he stood up right away. I have three kashas on the kutsos. But yet, <laughs> asking a question on Moshe Rabbeinu, that's a whole different level. How do you do that? How do you doubt the prophecy and the, 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 the truth of Moshe? We find by Moshe Rabbeinu himself, he seems to do the exact same thing. There's uh, the famous Pasuk in Tehillim, Ubar Leva, of one who was pure of heart. The Midrash tells us that's a reference to Moshe. Why was Moshe pure of heart? So it tells us, When Moshe was standing there, having that communication with Hashem by the burning bush, he didn't accept the mission until he clarified exactly what Hashem meant and why he was the best guy for the job. And he tried all sorts of things. I can't speak well. I have an older brother. He's really more capable than I am. He tried all sorts of things. And he only accepted the mission once he understood fully, okay, all my excuses don't work. I guess I just have to listen. We're not criticizing Moshe. We're not putting him down. We're not saying he was lacking faith. We're saying, Bar Levov, that's purity of spirit. That's nobility of the soul. Why is that something we're praising? So how could B'tzalel question Moshe? And in a similar theme, how can Moshe question Hashem? And it's not just once, but it's twice. Right before Hashem gives the Torah, what does Hashem tell Moshe? Go down from the mountain and warn everybody that they can't come up the mountain. So Moshe should have said, yes sir, I'll do that right away. And Moshe didn't say that. What did Moshe say instead? (laughs) One second, you already told me to tell that to them. I told that to them before. They know that information already. What's the point of doing it again? What a waste of time. So that's kind of a silly thing to say to Hashem. If the, if the infinite Boreolam, the eternal creator of the universe, is telling you to do something, the assumption is there's probably a reason behind it, and although I don't quite get it, I'll accept it, and I'll go down, and I'll listen and follow instructions for crying out loud. What a chutzpah. The Rabag says, based on Moshe's question to God, he says, we learn from here the proper way to behave. Source number 11. These are amazing words, the Rabag. We could learn from Moshe that it's not appropriate for any human being to do something that doesn't make sense. That's a waste of time. Because Moshe, when he was given this command, it was difficult for him to do. I'm going to go back down and warn Claudius not to go up the mountain? I told him already not to do so. So again, we're not putting Moshe down, we're not criticizing him, we're not saying there was a lack of faith. Says the Ralbag, we should learn from Moshe that you should not do something that's worthless, meaningless, or a waste of time. That's why it was difficult in Moshe's eyes. So to summarize our two basic problems. Basic problem number one is, we find this, this common thread, this mida, this quality of, of wisdom of heart, B'tzalel, Yoshua, Moshe, and Shlomo HaMelech. What is that thing that they all seem to have that makes them ready to accept the light of the living God? 
And then we have this whole other issue when we analyze Bitzalel and Moshe, it seems like they're, they're just totally stepping out of bounds. Bitzalel questioning Moshe and Moshe questioning Hashem. What's going on over here? So I'll share with you a story. When, when I first started keeping Shabbos, right before getting into high school, so I was invited to someone's house. I lived in the valley at the time, and they lived in the city, in the Hancock Park area. And this is before GPS. Um, this is probably, I, I just started driving, so I was 16 at the time. And I was going to their house, and I thought I had good directions. I was very close with the family, and I made sure to leave with a good hour and a half, which gave me plenty of time. But I, I come from a long line of people who are very dysfunctional when it comes to finding their way to different places. So I'm getting thoroughly lost, and I realize, I'm looking at my, my watch, that there's like five minutes before, not candlelighting, there's five minutes before Shkia. It's almost sundown. I know I'm right around here somewhere, there's Formosa and Detroit and all the streets, and they all look so familiar, I've been here before, but I have no clue where I'm going. So I, I come into a gas station, and uh, a nice lady who works at the gas station, I run over to her, I'm like, please tell me, how do I get to 123 Detroit, South Detroit? And she starts saying in a very slow way, um, what I would do, <laughs> you know, like a whole like thesis, <laughs> I, would, I would go south for about a block and a half, and then go west. So at that point, I had no patience. So I said, but don't tell me north and south. I don't know what that means. Just point. P point to me the direction, please. Now looking back on that, it's kind of embarrassing, right? I don't know what north and south means. Just point to me. But why did I feel okay and comfortable doing that? Because I had such a strong desire to make sure to get there before sunset. I, how uncool would that be to drive in after sunset to Rabbi Grumman's house? You can't do that. I had such a strong desire, I didn't care about how I looked. I didn't care about, oh, it's a little bit embarrassing to, to speak like that. I just need to know the information. Says there Ben Yona, famous mission in Perkyovos, Veloha Baishan Lamed, that one who is bashful cannot learn. So the way he explains that, he says, Ain le Talmud Lomer, a person, a student should never say, Tipesh Kamoni, someone like me, I don't have any background, I'm stupid, I don't have a high IQ. Eich Eshel Doverlif Nechacham Gadol Betorah Mefupal Bechachma. How can I have the audacity, the brazenness to ask a question as someone of your stature? Velo Das, Velo Tavunali, I have nothing. I'm going to sound like a complete idiot. If that's your approach, then you'll stay lacking wisdom your entire life. You'll never learn anything in a real way. So, meaning to say, if you really, really want the chachma, if you want the information, then I don't care how I look, because I just have to get here. Similarly, the Rebbe Yonah says, on the first mission on the fourth parak. The famous Mishnah that defines what does it mean to be a wise man? Ezu Chacham Halomed Mikol Adam. 
The wise man is one who learns from all people. And again, there Ben Yonah explains, Ki kol chachmos. You could have someone who knows everything, and they could quote you right off the tip of their fingers, any source. Im eno ohe but if you don't love wisdom, eno chacham, you're not really wise. Eletipeshu, you're stupid, you're foolish. You think you're a wise person because you know a lot of information? That doesn't make you a chacham. Acha ohev osa umisava aleha. But if we have a love for wisdom, and we have a taiva, we have a desire, a, a yearning for it, even though right now I don't know anything about this subject or anything about anything, but I love it and I want to know more and I want to grow in this area. That's considered wise. You have wisdom. We have to love wisdom to the extent that we're willing to ask any person. I'm the Rosh Hashiva, and I know much more than you do, but you might know more in this particular area. I have no problem asking you. So when the Mishnah says, the one who learns from everybody, that's not the way to get wise. It's more of an indication if I'm willing to ask a question to any individual, regardless of race or color or background or level of education, that means I want it so badly, and if I want it so badly, that defines me as a, as a wise person. So Moshe Rabbeinu, B'Tzalel, Yeshua, and Shlomo HaMelech, what did they all have? They had a thirst. They were hungry for knowledge. That defined them as wise. Where do we see that? We see that in the chutzpah of B'tzalel. To turn to Moshe and say, are you sure Hashem said that? He wasn't questioning Moshe. It wasn't coming from a lack of faith. But it was coming from this unquenchable curiosity. I want to understand. Why would he say it in this order? What's going on? And if I'm missing something, then please clarify it. It wasn't, it wasn't coming from a disrespect. I want to know how things work. So really, question number two is answering question number one. We see the Chacham Lev, we see the wisdom from the fact he was able to ask Moshe Rabbeinu that question, and he didn't say, Chacham like this, how can I even say anything? He didn't say that. That's not the Jewish approach, as we know very well. One of the most surprising things to me when I came to, to the, the yeshiva in Queens that I spent many years at, after being in many different yeshivas, but that was like the big leagues. That's going to the mothership. Hundreds of people, you know, many of them well, well above and beyond where you are. These are people 10 years older than you who have been learning for a lot of the years. And th but the way they would speak to the Rebbe sometimes, I would question, how did he say it like that? What a chutzpah. And, and sometimes it was a chutzpah. <laughs> sometimes you could lose yourself. But that's the system we try to cultivate. When you walk into a base medrash, you walk into a, a yeshiva, it's not a library. You hear people arguing and going back and forth, and it's not just between peers, but it's even to someone who I know is so far above and beyond me, but I'll still argue vehemently. Not because I think he's wrong and I'm right, and I know more than he does, but I want to understand where you're coming from. I want to understand. 
That's what Moshe was doing. When Hashem said, I'm giving you a mission, go to Mitzrayim, redeem the people, the questioning of Moshe that lasted seven days wasn't based on a lack of faith. It was based on a chuka se'emes. He was searching for truth. I want to understand the mission well in order to do it well. When Hashem says, go down for the mountain and warn them not to come up, Moshe was saying, I need to understand that if I'm going to do your rutzo, I'm going to follow your will, I have to fully integrate it so I could feel it and do it well. Remember in ninth grade, when I, that was the first year I started learning Gemara. Most boys who started learning Gemara in sixth grade, seventh grade, but high school was the first time I started learning Gemara in a real way with Rabbi Stuhlberger as my ninth grade Rebbe. For those of you who know him, please feel free to stand up when I mention his name. But I remember the thing, <laughs> the thing that he did is when someone would ask a good question in Shear, he would throw a quarter at them. And this is, you know, before inflation. So that was, the <laughs> back in 1935, that was a big deal, a quarter. <laughs> you know. uh, it wasn't much, and I, di- I didn't really need quarters. Baruch Hashem, we were okay financially. But it just made it so much more exciting. It, it's showing that, that, that your teacher is machshiv, he appreciates, he respects a question sometimes even more than an answer. Because if you're asking, that means you're interested. If you're interested, that means you want to know. If you want to know, that means you're a chacham. That defines you as a wise man. Where do we see this quality in Yeshua and Shlomo that puts them in the same category of chacham lev? The Torah tells in Parshas Mishpatim that right before Moshe went up to Harsinai, Vayaka Moshe v'yoshua misharso, that Moshe went up together with Yoshua. Misharso means the one who would serve him. Vayal Moshe al har and Moshe ascended to the mountain of God. So Rashi is bothered by the question, why did Yeshua come with him? Everybody knew that only Moshe was going up all the way. Why would Yeshua accompany him? So Rashi suggests, Shehaya Talmud Malava he was his disciple, he was his student. He wanted to be there with his Rebbe, Ad Mokom Hagbolas Tchumehahar, to the very last moment. If I could walk together with Moshe Rabbeinu another 500 feet and have a few minutes of more time being able to ask him questions and to learn from him and to draw out from that infinite wellspring from within his neshama, I'm not going to miss the opportunity. I'm not going to not walk him up to as far as I could go. And he pitched his tent, and he stayed there for all 40 days, away from his wife and family. When he got back, his wife was livid. But he did it anyway. <laughs> Why? So he could walk Moshe back down the mountain to have extra time with him. Yeshua was Chacham Lev. Was he the smartest man of his generation? Was he the most accomplished in his Torah learning? The answer is clearly no. And there are many proofs to support that. But the reason why he was chosen is because he was an Isha Sheruach Bo. He had the spirit, the spirit of, I want to know more. Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest of all men. Why did Hashem give him the gift of wisdom? Where did that come from? So read Tanakh. It tells us that he had a dream. Hashem came to him in a dream and he said, I want to grant you a wish, whatever you want. I want to give you something. And Shlomo turns to Hashem and says, Give me Chachma. Source number 16. Beautiful request from Shlomo HaMelech. He says, Here I am, your servant. 
I find myself in the middle of your nation trying to take over from my great father. And, and there's so many choices. And therefore I beg of you, please, I want to be able to lead, lead them in the right direction, to know the difference between good and bad. Please give me chachma. Says, says the, the Pasuk in Malachim, This was beautiful in the eyes of Hashem. Because Shlomo asked for this. So why was Shlomo the wisest of all men? Because he requested it from Hashem. He davened for it. That's the Chacham Leiv. That's the connection between Betzalel, Yeshua, Moshe, and Shlomo. Anyone who has ever made it big, and making it big doesn't mean that we're famous, or everybody knows about us, or we have this many people in our shul, or this many people in the yeshiva. Making it big means anyone who really accomplishes in the world of Torah, it's coming from Chacham Leiv. There's, there's an unquenchable thirst. However, and here's the important caveat, when we want to know what to do and we want to learn more, we can never feel any restriction, anything holding us back to ask questions. By, by being able to ask and being bold in the way we ask, that's how we're expressing the Chachma and that's how we're gaining more Chachma. But being able to ask questions in a wise way does take some level of experience. I've shared this before with some people here. Probably two of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life. Of course, I went to my Rosh Hashiva to ask him his advice. And both times, I ended up doing something different. Now that sounds a little bit bordering on apicorsis, and I'll explain. The first question was regarding marriage. Do I, do I get married? Do I go for it? It was an interesting engagement. Baruch Hashem, my wife is not here in the room right now. I, I was in, I was good, I was fine. But then, you know, we went back and forth. And so I went through by Grumblatt and I asked him the question, trying to lay out things as clearly as possible. Does it make sense to go forward and get engaged? And the answer was, no, I wouldn't do it. Okay. We had now been married about 13 years. So how did that work? When I heard the answer, there was not a disregard, chas v'sholem. I'm speaking to somebody who knows a lot more than I'll ever know, who has a lot more experience than I do. So when you hear an answer that doesn't seem to fit, we don't pride ourselves in being brainwashed. We think about something. Let me pace on this. Let me mull it over. Let me digest it. Let me really try to feel, does this make sense? How do I know that we're able to do this? Because that's what B'tzalah did to Moshe Rabbeinu. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu did with Hashem. He was asking Kaddish Baruch Hu, does this make sense? If Moshe could ask Hashem, we have the right to ask our teachers and our Rebbeim as well. So after pacing on it for a while, I went back with a different angle. And I said, I, I hear where everybody's coming from. I, I, don't, I don't see that concern as a realistic concern for A, B, and C. And therefore I feel that it probably does make sense to move forward. And the response was, I hear. So I took that and I ran. 
The second, the second time was regarding the question of moving down to Florida. Right, as many of you know, that was a very tumultuous time in the, the Light family, knowing that we had a transplant coming up in eight months and we're going to have to drop off the girls, Bubby and Zadie, in New York, and to now to uproot the family, to move to Florida, to be there for six months, just to go back to there and go to Michigan. It was crazy. So again, a big question, what do you do? You ask a Shiloh, you get advice from someone who knows more than you do. So again, I went to my Rosh Hashiv and I asked him the question trying to clarify all of the, the details as much as possible. And the response was, I don't think I would do it. Okay. So I didn't do it. So I paced on it. And after about a day's worth of pacing, I came back to the Rosh Hashiva, and I said, let me rephrase the question. I know you were telling me that you feel that it might be too much Messiris Nefesh. It's too much right now for the family. It might not be the best move. Would you think that I was foolish if I did it anyway? Would you think that was a wrong move if I felt that my family and I were up for the task? And the answer to that was, no. If you want to take it upon yourself, do you think it's doable? Then uh, call a kavod. That happens to be afterwards I spoke to Shmuel Kamenetsky and Baruch Hashem, that was very helpful. When I presented the question to him, he asked me the question, are you going there l'shem shemayim? Are you going with sincerity? And I tried to be as honest as possible in my answer and I said, I'm sure that's definitely part of my motivation, but there could be many other things going on that I'm not even aware of. I can't claim to be fully l'shem shemayim. But he said, as long as you're going l'shem shemayim, that's part of your agenda, and that's for sure part of the agenda, to try to build Torah and build people and, and do good things, then not only is it okay to go, but I would give you bracha, you go, you'll have a refuah shalema. So that was, that was more power, baruch Hashem. So the idea is having, having that desire, having that yearning, having some semblance of what time it is. I have no clue what time it is right now, by the way. I don't have a watch with me. What time is it? Okay. And at the same time, being able to express that in a very bold way. We ask questions, we're not afraid. And if we get an answer that doesn't fit, keep on asking, keep on pacing. Now I want to share with you one last question on this whole subject. This is a question that I think many people have when we go through some of these sources. Who is given the most extreme, intense, insane, crazy instructions in human history? Avram Avinu. When Hashem tells you to take your son, your only son, the one you love, and kill him. That's not easy. So I would have assumed if, if Moshe could ask questions and, and many others, why didn't Avram turn to Hashem right there and then and say, what are you talking about? Are you, are you kidding? Are you trying to test me? Are you joking? What, what, what's going on over here? That's insane. Everything we're doing is to hopefully pass this on and to have a legacy of Torah and monotheism. Why would I destroy all of that? It's a pretty basic question. Why didn't Avraham ask that question? So the Taz, the Taz is known for his, his classic commentary on the Shulchan Aruch. 
the Taz has a, a one-volume sefer where he has commentary on the Torah, and he addresses this question. He says, Kasha, lamelo hiksha klum kisha omelo kach naas bincha. Why didn't Avraham ask anything when he first received the command to shech your son? It was only afterwards he asked the question. Why didn't he ask before? Says the Taz, a profound insight which really just gives us the tools we need for this maze of life. V'yesh lomar, d'shom lo hayarotze lehakshos klum. Avraham didn't want to ask anything. K'day shelo yed nira shekasha lo so it wouldn't appear that the command to slaughter his son was difficult for him. Moshe didn't want to ask any questions because then it would look like that command was hard for him. So at first glance, this answer is very difficult to understand. Did Hashem know this was difficult for you? Of course He knows that. He's doing that because this is a Nisayon. This is your greatest test of life. So, so what does that mean? Avram didn't want it to look like it was difficult by asking. It was difficult. What is the Taz saying? What is he answering to this very, very fundamental question? So I think what he's saying is as follows. If you allow your a- yourself to ask a question in this type of delicate situation, so what I'm doing externally is, I'm, I'm showing a doubt. I'm, I'm demonstrating, I'm expressing the fact that I'm hesitant to do this. What kind of impact will that have on me? That could destroy the whole mission. When the Taz says, I didn't want to do anything that would look like I'm questioning Hashem, it doesn't mean because I didn't want Hashem to see me doing something. It means for myself. If I would ask a question right here and now, I might not be able to go through with this. It might shake me up to the core, where even if he did it, it wouldn't have been with the same clarity and and, and sincerity. So he held back asking, because it would not have been helpful. Post facto, after going through the Nisayon and passing with flying colors, then, Hashem, please, what was that all about? (laughs) Why were you doing that? Then he felt free to ask the question. So I think we see an amazing caveat here from this Taz, which is we should always ask questions because we need to understand what we're doing in order to do it well and to do it better and to do it with enthusiasm. However, sometimes when things are so shaky and things are so fragile, it's not the time for asking questions. If if someone's going through some kind of real sorrow, a real distressing situation, a tragedy, and they're trying to deal with something. And they ask the question, why me? Why is this happening? That's a very valid question. And the sad truth is, we usually don't have any answers for those questions. But at the same time, I think we learn from the Taz, if you're in the middle of dealing with it, now is not the time to ask. That could take away your focus. Right now you have to have a laser focus of, I'm here to do the best that I can for the person or the situation in need, and perhaps afterwards I'll have more of a chance to to ask those big questions of why. But sometimes asking why is not a good move if it throws you off doing what you need to do. 
So we want to strive to be chachamim, we want to be wise, and that means we have to have a thirst and a desire to keep on learning, and we can never be embarrassed to ask questions. We should be bold in the way we ask. We should never feel that he's too lofty to approach. Come with strength and vigor and ask the question. At the same time, uh, sometimes keep the question on the side to be able to do the job well, and then afterwards we could reassess. A good Shabbos, everybody.